Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to the next episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're continuing to talk about the plan of atonement theodicy that we had an outline of last time, and we went into kind of the basic ideas of it. So this time we're going to dive into some of the issues, primarily with points probably number nine the most, which talks about the consent that we all gave in the pre-mortal life and the further consent that some may have given to, well, we'll discuss what in this episode. But to start us off, just kind of a recap of what we're doing here. So this is to address the problem of evil, which again is just, you know, why do we each suffer? You know, why is there pain? And we've established on this view, at least, that God has enough power to do something about it. So your view is more or less a soul-building theodicy, but with the added layer from Mormon thought of a pre-mortal life, which at least no other Christian tradition has explored as it relates to the problem of evil. And so the basic idea we're going to go over here is this idea of consent and whether or not that is something that will suffice to justify the evil that we've got here. But if you go back, you'll probably want to listen to the episode again. It's been a little while. Sorry, because of scheduling conflicts. But you want to go back and probably listen to that episode if you don't have it fresh on your mind to hear the other points. The first point is that the good that we're going for, this soul building or the eventual union with God that we're building ourselves toward, is on this view such a great good that it's worth pretty much anything that we're going to have to go through here, any harm or any problem. But we'll get into it, I guess, but I guess a, a summary is God has a plan and we use this master chess player analogy before, so we're saying, you know, God can accomplish his purposes, that's cool. But the question then comes up with the problem of evil is, well, are some of us just sacrificial pawns in God's grand game of chess? And if so, is that justified? And so that's kind of where we're brought to, and that's where we talk about the ideas of consent. So the first section that we're going to go over is called, Can Radical Evils Benefit the Victims as an Essential Feature of God's plan of atonement. And so, to start that off, I just want to remind us of this. So, in most soul-building theodicies, or even the free will theodicy, God does have enough power to stop certain evils, but you have posited that evil is essential to this soul-building process. The first idea that just, you know, we say, you know, evil has to be necessary in order for there to be soul-building, as well as evil has to be necessary in order for there to be free will. But the evidential problem of evil says, yes, that may be so, but while the possibility of some evil action is necessary to a greater good, no particular instance of evil is necessary to a greater good. So that's what you're trying to address here, saying, you know, we can say evil has to exist in general, but why the specific evil? For example, we've been talking about, mostly I guess, the example of Rachel Runyon and her murder. So say, well, it has to be possible to murder. True, but why her? Why did it have to be that specific instance of evil? Why wouldn't God stop that? And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Sorry, that's kind of a long babbling intro, but that's just a, kind of a recap. Let me just ask you this question. So when we went over the problem of evil originally, we established that if you had this soul-building theodicy and, and God had enough power to 
stop some evils, but he needed to allow some evils for there to be this greater good, then Peter Van Inwagen said that while that may be the case, it would seem that there is no you know, clear line of how much evil is totally necessary, and so it would seem that God is just kind of drawing an arbitrary line to where evil is, and it, it has to be arbitrary. Remind us of that and kind of where that fits into this. Remember the analogy. So you've got a felon who's serving 500 days on his sentence, and the warden asks himself, well, would 499 days be any less of a deterrent and work any less than the 500 days? And he concludes, no, 499 days would do it as well, so I'm going to shorten the sentence by one day because this warden, I can do that. Then he asks himself, what about 498 days? Would that do it as well? Yeah, that would do it as well. Well, what about 497? And there is no point at which it's obvious that there is a deterrent value that is being served. And so the way that Van Inwagen develops the analogy, there just is no line at all. And so what we're looking at is the possibility that, you know, whatever evils occur, we can't really complain because there have to be allowed some challenges in order for us to be able to grow. Whether they're evil or not, we'd have to talk about what constitutes an evil. And remember, we talked about radical evils. Radical evils are those that destroy the personality of the victim or the person of whom we're speaking. And genuine evils are those where the universe is not better, all things considered, by allowing that to occur. And so what we're dealing with here is the reality of radical evils. Evils that are truly destructive of the personality of those that are being involved. For instance, Rachel Runyon. And this has always been the greatest challenge of any soul-building theodicy. And that is, what do we do with those who don't even get started on the process of soul-building? Rachel was four years of age. She didn't have the opportunity to really develop as a person, certainly not to her full personhood. It's hard to see how she could benefit from being taken and raped and bludgeoned to death. And it appears that allowing this type of an evil is just something that has no real possible explanation. And we also have adopted what I would call the Kantian constraint, and that is, it's not enough that someone benefits from allowing evil. It has to be the case that Rachel Renning herself could benefit from the evil occurring. We can't allow others to simply grow because Rachel Renning was murdered and because she was brutally beaten. If we all grow because or if we realize that how great evil is or whatever we learn from that having occurred, how do we justify the fact that Rachel herself can't benefit and that essentially it would mean that God's plan is using Rachel Rinian as a mere means to benefit us but not her? So you gave an analogy, and again, you'll have heard it. If you heard the last Plan of Atonement podcast, and it's of Job, and you point that out saying, well, you know, the idea is that God was trying to teach Job a lesson or to test Job, but in, in the process of doing that, then his wife and his children were sacrificed. And you're saying, like Rachel Runyon, it's possible, I guess, that people benefited from that and it was necessary so that other people could benefit. But what about her? What about Job's kids? They suffered and they didn't get to prove themselves to God. They just died, you know? So that's what we're talking about. Yeah, it's like God didn't care about them. All he cared about was whether or not Job could be proven to be faithful, right? So the kind of theodicy that I'm developing here is what I would call a complete theodicy. There needs to be some explanation as to how those who are the victims at a young age of what occurs could also be beneficiaries on their own for what occurs. 
And in order to explain that, I'm explaining that in Mormonism, we don't begin here for the first time. In other words, the plan is an ongoing plan, and it didn't start here, and it won't end here. You've already correctly pointed out that the good to be achieved in Mormonism is such a towering good because deification isn't merely modified deification where we become something remotely like God in an analogical sense. We actually become like God in an actual full sense. We share everything that he has and is. We share in the most fulfilling, loving relationship possible. That includes virtually every being that exists if they're willing to join in. And our goal is to get them to join in. And it is endeavor worth our, our eternal life's endeavor. But we're looking at this earth and asking, okay, we have things like Rachel Runyon. We talked about all the victims of smallpox and so forth. It didn't appear that we had to allow smallpox. Smallpox is not essential to the well-being of the world, and we know that because smallpox has been eradicated. So why would God allow smallpox? But I think the Van Inwagen's observation that no particular instance of evil may be necessary to allow God's plan to move forward. Nevertheless, some instances of people choosing to do evil have to be allowed if we're going to live in a real world that isn't, as John Hick would say, an hedonic paradise. If people are going to be allowed to make free decisions with real results that may result from free choices that are evil, then there have to be times when that is actually allowed to happen. Now, it may be that which ones are allowed to happen are totally random, but it appears that God is simply saying, I'm going to leave people free to do what they choose. It's not random. People are left free to sink as low as they choose, and they're free to rise as high as they choose, and that's up to them. So part of what we're looking at explaining today is the threefold problem. How is it that we can explain that individuals who are the victims of such heinous crimes can nevertheless be beneficiaries of their experience on earth? How is it possible that what occurs is actually for a greater good, and how do we explain it as being part of a greater good? And how is it possible that we would have evils that occur that are within God's power to eradicate but he could be justified in not eradicating them, even if the particular challenge itself doesn't itself result in a greater good to the universe as a whole, but allowing some of it is necessary to a greater good. And so what we're doing in part, I think, is adopting also part of Hasker's observations that in open theism, for instance, there can be instances of genuine evil, which is different than on the view of meticulous providence. But those are the three things that we're looking to talk about today. We've outlined a complete theodicy that gives an explanation for why things occur. And now part of the explanation is going to be that a person like Rachel Renya could benefit because she expresses her love for others out of her own free will by being willing to come to this earth, having consented to undergo the kinds of evils that actually did occur to her, at least as a possibility. Now, there are three ways of looking at this. One is that Rachel consented to the actual evil that occurred because God's knowledge is so complete, he knew it would occur, he let her know it would occur, and she consented to it. On an open view, however, where the future isn't completely known, that seems to be a very difficult stance to take. There's a modified version of that where Rachel is giving what I would call a general consent. She's saying whatever evils will occur, I'm willing to allow them to occur. I'm consenting to that because I know it's essential to your plan, and even if I die before the age of accountability, I will be able to benefit because I will be able to express my love for other people. I will not be a mere means. This is something that I choose to do and consent to. 
and I will be expressing my love for them by allowing God's plan to move forward by consenting to this. There's what I call a modified-modified view. That is, not merely is there a general consent, but that God, when we're entering into the world, basically discloses to us the status of the world that we're entering into and the nature of the family and the situations that we're entering into. So if we're entering into a situation where it's very likely that we're going to be abandoned by our parents and grow up in an orphanage, God explains the risks of that, the likelihood that that's going to occur, and then given the specific nature of the world as it is, we consent specifically to that. So those are the types of consent that we're talking about, and all three are open possibilities on this particular theodicy, but of course it's a sliding scale. It would be wonderful if everybody consented specifically to everything that occurs to them, because then the consent would seem to be more palatable as an actual justifiable allowance of consent. The less that is explained to us when we consent, for instance, if you go in for an operation and you're going to have your tonsils out, one of the things that could occur is that you could get an infection and die, and that's explained. But if it's known as a matter of fact that at this particular hospital there happens to be present right now a, a viral infection that is spreading, that anybody who's in the hospital is actually being put at risk because of that fact, and the hospital administration covers that up, they would be culpable for not <laughs> explaining to us the actual circumstances that they're aware of. So it seems to me that God would have a duty, at the very least, to explain to us the nature of the circumstances in which we enter when we're born. But of course, that gets us not very far in life because those circumstances are subject to being changed so radically, even though there are general familial tendencies that you know, transferred from generation to generation. And then the notion is, you know, would the notion of a mere general consent it's like William James explained, God gathers everyone and says, you know, I'm involved in an endeavor that involves real danger. You could experience pain. I know you haven't experienced pain before, but you could experience pain. You could be put into situations where your very humanity is being denigrated and your dignity is being denied. But you could win out and have a great glory. Are you willing to participate in this endeavor with me, which is a very general type of an explanation? Would that be sufficient? So on the one end, the question for the general consent is, is that sufficient? The question on the specific end where we consent to everything is, is that even possible with the kind of limits on God's foreknowledge and, and the allowance of free will as we've explained it? And would the modified consent, obviously being kind of a, a way station in between, would that be adequate consent for the rest of a person's life after the circumstances that have been consented to no longer exist, but they continue in life? So those are kind of the issues that, that we have to explore. And yeah, we'll go back over a lot of what you said there, but to start us out in the chapter, you give the precedent of this idea in, in past Mormon discourse and say, in a vision to Joseph Smith dated the 21st of January, 1836, the voice of God declared, all children who die before the age of accountability are saved in the celestial kingdom of heaven. That's from Doctrine and Covenants, section 137, verse 10. And so you draw out three points that are essential to make about this particular revelation. And, yeah, we'll go over them. So first, you say, It does not follow from the fact that children who die before the age of accountability are assured celestial glory that therefore God caused the death of, let's say, Rachel Runyon or any other child to die before the age of accountability. Rather, it means that if one, in fact, does die before such an age, then that person is assured celestial glory. So that would seem to mean that if by chance they did die, then they're assured celestial glory just at least at this level, not explained exactly why, just because children are innocent and they didn't do anything to cause them to not go, I guess. 
I think there's a more complete explanation that's possible within the scope of the Mormon knowledge of a pre-existence, and that is that, I mean, and this is inherent in the recognition in the Book of Abraham that there's this gradation of intelligences, and they go from lower intelligences to higher intelligences, and that is that it may be that given the prior experiences that we've already had of growth, because the Mormon view, at least the view of Joseph Smith, assumed that there were worlds without end and that we had had numerous experiences before we got here. Yeah, it sounds kind of like reincarnation, but it really isn't because it's having different kinds of experiences, possibly on different planets or in different dimensions or whatever. This is, according to the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith, this is really the first time we've taken on ourselves a mortal body. And once we take on our resurrected body at the resurrection, we won't then cast it off and go have another experience like mortality again because we'll be immortal forever and have a resurrected body. But the notion is that we have many innumerable different types of experiences and that this has been going on for a very long time, indeed for an eternity. And so before we get here, there are those who have already progressed to the point where if they die before the age of accountability, they are not deprived of a greater glory because they've already achieved such wisdom, knowledge, love, and and growth that they won't be deprived of that. Certainly they can gain from their experiences, but more importantly, they're here also to serve. And it's okay. God's plan for them and for the world is not destroyed if they die before the age of accountability. I mean, I think the corollary is there may be those who haven't progressed to that point, and God would intervene to preserve them, to make sure that their life is actually of a benefit to them if they actually require the kinds of experiences that we're going to have in this life in order to grow. We've talked about this before, but in in this regard, I credit the kinds of near-death experiences where people are told that they've got more to do and they're sent back because they haven't accomplished the purpose of their lives yet. Now, many times people aren't just sent back. They're given a choice. You know, it's okay if you stay. It's okay if you leave. What would you like to do? So for those people up up to that point in their lives, they've accomplished what they needed to do, and it's okay either way, though they could still continue to learn and progress if if they continued in a mortal life. But there are others who weren't given a choice. They're just sent back because they haven't done what they were sent here to do. And so I think that's the kind of view that's implicit in what I'm presenting, and that is that people are at different points of progression, and and some are fine if they die now that they've accomplished enough in their lives. And that would be true of even children who die at a very young age because of what they achieved before they became mortal. I think that kind of a recognition is possible only if one adopts a notion of pre-existence where people have been able to progress to a certain point before they enter into mortality. So that's kind of the recognition, I think, that we can make here. And I think it's an explanation that becomes available to Mormon, given the notion of preexistence that isn't available in any other traditional theistic religion. Okay, I mean, I guess you kind of already went over these. I'm just going to read them, just so that it's clear. So he says, second, all persons who have accomplished whatever they came to learn, or at the very least, have had sufficient opportunity to do so, whatever their age, can leave this mortal probation at any time, having fulfilled their purpose in life. So, you say you get that from that Doctrine and Covenants quote. I'm not sure it quite implies that, but I I mean, I guess you kind of have given an explanation of why you might implicitly come to that conclusion, but we'll get to that in a second. But I see at least the way you've worded it poses some problems. Well, I say it this way because too many people jump to the unwarranted non sequitur that if a person is already of a celestial glory, that they will die before the age of accountability and, and that they'll be celestial nonetheless. It doesn't follow from the fact that if a person dies before the age of accountability, that they will be saved in the celestial kingdom. 
therefore they must die before they reach the age of accountability, which is often an implication that people make, but it's just a logical non sequitur. And so I want to avoid that. But that also raises the possibility that there are a lot of people living among us who are here who may be able to benefit personally from their experience, but their experience isn't necessary for them to enjoy a celestial glory. And they are here serving us. They are here in this life in the guise of a human being, but in reality are angels serving us because of what they have consented to undergo to allow us to learn for those of us who haven't already achieved a celestial glory. Number three, you say... There may be many people who live beyond the age of accountability who are nevertheless assured of the celestial kingdom because of the progress they made before this life. And that's basically what you just said. I think we get into that more in a second, but I just wanted to ask kind of off the bat here. So, I don't know, like maybe I'm just thinking too literally. Well, I don't know. I guess I have to think literally about this because you're saying it literally. But if that's the case, let's say this. Rachel Runyon came and she consented and let's say her killer happened to not, he, he didn't kill her. And so she lived on beyond the age of accountability. So two scenarios. First, if she decided to go off the deep end and rebel against God and sin up a storm, let's say, then she still assured celestial glory on this view. I'm not sure how that can hold, though, because that's just not how it seems to work. The problem with the pre-mortal life is that we don't remember any of it, and that poses a lot of problems in general, but for this especially, it doesn't matter if you were great and perfect, you could probably still sin, and if you had, if you were completely ignorant of your previous life, which we all are, then that would seem possible. I think the implication is, is that, and this is an implication drawn from Alma 40, by the way, the same spirit that we express here in, in this life, we'll have in the afterlife. I think the implication is that those who have developed this kind of character will act consistent with the character that they've developed for aeons. And so they simply won't go off the deep end, even though they're free to do so. It's a non sequitur to suggest that even though a person has an established character, they're therefore unfree to make choices because they're dictated by their character. That's just not true. I don't think you can. Your developed character from before has, it would seem, at least from my experience as a human, seems to have basically no bearing whatsoever almost on your present character that you're building here. I don't know what kind of data you could bring to bear to suggest that that's the case. Well, because personality is emergent. There's a lot of data on that, that children don't have the capacity to, you know, they don't have full control of their body, the, the personality consists of environment as well as your biology and the things you learn throughout your life and that's how it manifests as a human and that doesn't preclude that you know you have a different character and but the, the fact that we don't remember any of it seems to also preclude the fact that no matter what we did there here we're completely ignorant of that 100 percent and so the only way that we learn about it is when we learn about it in this life it's no one just magically learns about this unless they were to have someone teach it to them let me make this argument in favor of what I think you want to say, and that is it appears that there are people who go along, they're, they, have, they seem to be very stable, they're good people, they're, you know, they go to church every week, they're faithful to their wives, and then all of a sudden they just go off the deep end. We say they act out of character. That's the kind of statement we use. And we're all surprised by it because they seem to be so stable, and all of a sudden they're so unstable, and their character seems to change radically. And so I will admit that that kind of an observation would tend to suggest that character is not as stable as the argument that I'm making may require. Nevertheless, the fact is we can't really draw that conclusion at all. Now, how many people have actually achieved a celestial glory? 
if a person actually dies before the age of accountability, we can say, yeah, they, they fit into that group. We have no idea how many people that are in that group survive beyond the, the age of, of not being accountable. The number may be very small. My point of view that I'm open to as a live possibility is that without God's constant intervention, we, we wouldn't survive long at all because our bodies are miraculous and they require God's constant intervention just to function. But without God's constant intervention, the nature of, of the world in which we live would wipe us out of existence pretty quickly. God is constantly intervening to, to make it so that our bodies function. He's constantly intervening so that we don't accidentally kill ourselves or the accidents befall us. I think we see you know, little miracles in our lives all the time, but that's just a possibility. I'm just saying I'm open to this possibility. We don't know enough to assert that that's in fact not the case, and it certainly is possible. Yeah, I agree. I guess that's possible. But on your view, don't you see how that would be incompatible with your libertarian free will view? Because what you just said is basically exactly what a compatibilist view of free will is, that though you think you're being free... Because you're assuming character determinism. The mere fact that one in fact has an established character that one never deviates from doesn't mean that one isn't free to choose freely. No, I'm not talking about character. I'm talking about what you said about God intervening at the world at every second to achieve his purposes, stopping us from dying, stopping us from doing certain things so that we can't kill certain people if they haven't consented to it or something like that. That would seem to be that it would seem like we have free will, but we really don't because God is actually just controlling everything so that all these things have to happen the way that he wants for his plan. That is compatibilism. That's a non sequitur as well. The mere fact that we're not allowed to do some things doesn't mean that we have no significant free choices to make. Does God intervene to stop us? Uh, I'm open to the possibility that that could occur, but I think more likely is that God simply allows us to make free choices and whatever the consequences are, they occur. And so while that's one possibility on this particular theodicy, let's also adopt the possibility that people are allowed to simply randomly make free choices and so what kind of consent would be consistent with that kind of random choice? And the answer is that God couldn't tell us much about what our life would be like at age, for instance, 10. might be able to tell us what our, our life is going to be like for the first year of our lives, and we could specifically consent to that. But the kind of specific consent then would no longer be applicable after you know many months because things could change so radically in the kinds of free choices that we make. Exactly. It would, it would seem to render that kind of consent unnecessary and unhelpful because there's no way to know. The consent would be very helpful, but it may be impossible to give the kind of knowledge necessary or the kind of disclosure necessary so that we could consent to it, given the reality of free will. And that would argue in favor of a more general type of a consent rather than a more specific type of a consent. So it seems to me the most reasonable position to take, and I discussed this, I think, last time, is that we give a general consent to the types of things that may befall us in mortality, where God discloses to us the best that can be done given the status of our experiential knowledge, and that God explains to us as fully as can be done the nature of the world into which we will be born, and the, the family or the lack of a family into which we will be born, and the circumstances. Now, it would be difficult to argue that the circumstances into which we were born are not a major factor in the rest of our lives, because they clearly are. But having said that, we wouldn't, for instance, be able to give specific consent to the actual fact that an alcoholic father would one day kill us or rape us or something like that. But certainly being born into the family of a violent alcoholic would make that much more likely, and God would disclose that. 
what God couldn't disclose is when they when the father becomes alcoholic when the child is five years of age and then the, you know everything goes to hell in a handbasket quickly. Or where you've got two loving parents, God says, you know, you're going to a family where there isn't a history of divorce, the parents love each other, and, you know, then when the child reaches age 10, the parents divorce, their father isn't providing support, the mother is destitute and desperate to provide, and the nature of the life that one thought one was going to have would be radically different. So it seems to me the most reasonable position to take, however, is that that's the best kind of consent that God could give, given the realities of free will and given the realities of just the nature of all the number of possibilities that could occur. So we've got a chess player analogy. God knows everything that's possible, and he knows that whatever is possible to occur, he's got a way to answer that. But it may be that, and it is the case, that exactly how it's going to come about, he doesn't know. It is nevertheless the case that God could intervene to preserve our lives. I think you would be hard put to talk to almost any person who actually believes in God that doesn't believe that their life may have been preserved on one or two occasions, or that at least they were protected. I'm not arguing with you. I, I agree with your statement. I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, so what I'm saying is, is, is that God may intervene from time to time to make sure that we continue to remain in this life and that God preserves us so that the purposes of our lives can be fulfilled. The other implication of this is that there may be certain kinds of experiences that we wanted to have so that we could benefit from them, and that God saw that being born into certain circumstances would be more beneficial for us than other kinds of circumstances. So, for instance, let's say that you've got a young girl born into a family with a long history of child abuse, sexual abuse, and so forth. It may well be, you may say, well, why would anybody want to experience that? But the kinds of challenges that come from that kind of experience may be something that a pre-mortal spirit, having had numerous types of experiences already, would say, you know, going through that kind of an experience is something that I would benefit from, and I'm willing to undergo that kind of experience, knowing that that family is like that. Those are the possibilities. So let's move through the rest of the section pretty quickly, and then we'll, we'll concentrate more on the consent in the next section. But let's just get through this here. So let's go through this, and I want to ask you kind of a general question that is overarching. But so we've talked about unredeemable evils, meaning all things considered, it would be better had they not occurred. Or I guess another way is saying, if there's a soul building theodicy, that let's say something occurs and there is no soul building out of it, it just happens and it either kills a person and they don't get to have a soul building, or it happens to ruin the lives of everyone that it touched or went along those lines. You're talking about the kind of thing of a Jewish Holocaust, I mean... Well, sure, just just that level. I mean, that's... I can't remember who, but that's... I don't remember. Some philosopher was saying, like, now when we talk about religion, we have to, we have to do that in the presence of burning children, meaning, you know, referring to the Holocaust, like, this, this happened, and so whatever God there is, he has to somehow coexist with this type of evil. What we're talking about here is just saying, well, okay, so let's say Rachel Runyon consented to something like this happening to her, maybe specifically, more than the general consent that she would have already given. So you say, I suggest that an evil or this kind of thing that comes about is permissible if it is redeemable. And you clarify, say, by redeemable, I mean that it is an event that has the potential to be given meaning because it potentially furthers God's plan of atonement and, in fact, benefits or furthers the interests of the victim of the evil. The evil need not actually lead to a greater good, 
in the sense that it is better, all things considered, that this particular evil, in fact, actually occurred. However, the possibility of such evils is essential to God's plan to achieve his purposes. So then when you talk about what it would be required to have something be a redeemable evil, you say there are some conditions that have to be met for something to meet that. And we'll go over those. So you say, first, let's take the Rachel Runyon example. Rachel must have consented to confront this life and all the kinds of dangers and challenges attendant to mortality. And again, you say, I'm not asserting that Rachel Runyon or anyone else consented to the particular morally reprehensible actions that caused her death. That would only be possible if God could have foreknowledge of morally free actions. So you can't say, do you consent that George over here, come here, come here, George. He's going to kill you when you're five years old. You're going to do that, George? Sure, go. I mean, that's not free will. The George is now assigned to do that, or God foresaw it. That would have to be the case for that to happen. But he's saying, not that. Such knowledge is impossible, you say. What I am asserting is that Rachel Runyon and others who are subjected to radical evils consented to the types and the kinds of evils that could occur in this life. So I guess just, I, I guess I already said that, but you're just clarifying that this would be some people may have consented past just the general consent. And I'm wondering if you could clarify what it is that we, I don't know, like when, when you kind of gave your, was it William James example, it would seem that we would all have consented to these types of things, saying, you know, you could be murdered by anyone because you all have free will. You could all get raped at any moment because everyone has free will. That can happen to you. I can't control it. I can't control free will. I'm God. I'm going to you know, in the Mormon view, he doesn't even just allow free will. He, it's inherent in us. That may well be the case, but it seems to me that there are some people who are specifically preserved for a purpose. For instance, his own son, Jesus Christ. I don't think he would have allowed, you know, somebody in Egypt, well, he, well, Jesus was in Egypt to run in and kill him because he had a specific purpose to fulfill. And so I believe that God will, because people have purposes to fulfill, preserve their lives and make sure that they have the opportunity at least. Now, on my view, it's necessary that Christ confronted the kind of challenges that he actually did. It's essential, however, to recognize that on my view, Christ was not required to, could have freely chosen not to drink the bitter cup in the scriptural terms. He could have said, yeah, I'm not going to do this, I can't do this, and I freely choose not to. And if he had done that, then the entire purpose of the plan of atonement would have been frustrated. That's what the Book of Mormon says. Why are you talking about Christ? I thought we were talking about Rachel Runyon. Are you getting into foreordination here, or what are you getting at? Yeah, because it may be that there are specific types of individuals besides Christ, and in fact there are, who have specific purposes to fulfill in life. I would suggest that Joseph Smith is one of those people. I don't think it's an accident that the only physician on the East Coast who could have possibly saved his life by doing the leg operation that he did just happened to be there. I believe that God helped orchestrate it and organize that, and so did, did Joseph Smith. That's the purpose of the entire episode. And so what I'm saying is we may see instances in our lives where we recognize that our lives are being preserved, and then we see later in our lives the kinds of experiences that we have and why we were preserved, that we had a purpose to fulfill. It may be that, that God is constantly involved in preserving people to ensure that their lives' purposes are fulfilled. If it's possible for Jesus, it's possible for virtually anyone. But I think any Christian would be hard-pressed to say, yeah, it's possible that some bandit would have killed his family along the road up to Jerusalem when he was just a child because he had a specific purpose to fulfill. Joseph Smith had a specific purpose to fulfill. I believe I've had a specific purpose to fulfill. 
and many people feel that way. Now, it's possible that not everybody has a specific purpose to fulfill like that, but it's also possible that virtually everyone does. And so on this theodicy, it's just God has the kind of power that's necessary to preserve people's lives and to engage in miracles to ensure that their life's purpose is fulfilled. Once we recognize that there are individuals who have progressed to a, a celestial glory and that their lives' purpose is fulfilled even if they die as young children, then we no longer face the specter where soul building absurd because, you know, some children are being sacrificed for the mere benefit of the plan. They're being used as mere means. The reality is, is that everybody's life has specific purpose and meaning. And those people who consent to come down and merely be angels to allow others, it may be that when children die young, the Mormon view is that they have already fully accomplished their life's purpose because that's all they really needed to do was to come down, gain a body. And did they have any further experiences? It need not be for some in order to have a fulfilling, meaningful mortality and mortal experience, one that benefits them. Now, here's the whole point. With Kant's second categorical imperative, most people leave out the merely. That is, a person cannot be merely a means to another end, but must be an end in and of themselves also. It's possible they can be a means, but they can't be a mere means. In other words, they could be used as a means, but as long as there is also something of purpose being accomplished, they can be used as a means. So if I'm a father, and I see that my house is on fire and I have children inside, I freely choose to run inside to save my children. It's the case that what I'm doing is a free choice. I'm confronting, you know, knowingly confronting the evils that are there, the fire that may well kill me, but I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to sacrifice myself in order to save my own children. And that's the kind of sacrifice that we're talking about here. There may be individuals who so loved others that they were willing to be born into a family that they could learn from seeing the kinds of evils that they've perpetrated on others and to learn from their experience. They were willing to become essentially saviors in their own right because they were willing to confront that kind of an evil. The whole point of the more specific type of consent and the kinds of agreements that we could enter into before life in other words, it may well be that my children consented to be my children so that I could learn what they have to teach me. And they were willing to be my children, even though my children well know that sometimes it's really difficult to be in relationship with me. It can be scary at times. But my children consented to that nevertheless because they were willing to give me the opportunity to learn the lessons that would be taught or at least give me the opportunity, the potential of learning those lessons. Now, here's the recognition that we have to make when people have free will. It's the case that nobody is guaranteed to actually benefit from their experience. We could freely choose to go to hell in a handbasket at any time. And the real tragedy in life is not death. There are two tragedies in life. The first tragedy is when we bury a person who was never truly alive and they didn't experience life in the first place to its fullest. But the second tragedy is when there were opportunities to learn to love and we didn't take those opportunities. We failed to learn the lessons that were there for us to learn. That's a true tragedy. Now, it's not an eternal tragedy. The lesson may come around again. We may get another opportunity to learn that lesson. But if we refuse for an eternity to learn those lessons, that's truly a tragedy. When we refuse to love at all, that's what the sons of perdition are. They are people who eternally choose to reject all others and, and enclose themselves and shut themselves off. Okay, that's fine. But my question there was that what you said is, is good and fine, and I, I agree with that, but 
for the most part, except for one thing, I, I was just asking if God is explaining to us that if when we have free will, that also gives us the opportunity for any one of us, if we so choose, or if we so, you know, indulge our dark side and some circumstances lead to us, like every person is capable, if they use their free will, of murdering any other person if they so choose. And I guess you could say God could intervene. For sure he could, I guess, and I'm not sure exactly what means. I guess that's not important, but... Look, God could intervene in any case to stop any murder on any occasion by simply causing an aneurysm in a person's brain. And it could be a temporary aneurysm where a person is just maybe a day incapacitated or something. you, there are easy ways of coming up with how God could intervene that won't destroy his plan or make it obvious that he exists, and that would certainly truncate free will for a moment, but so what, and that wouldn't in any way destroy his plan. But it's not the case that he doesn't have the kind of power necessary to stop evils from occurring. He could have stopped the entire world war by putting Hitler into a catatonic state and everybody around him that he needed to to incapacitate them. He could have caused the bubonic plague to get rid of three-quarters of the population if he needed. Exactly. Well, that's what we're talking about here specifically, so that's why I'm saying everybody that ever got murdered or died in a horrendous way, you're saying that they had to consent to that specifically. I'm saying, no, I would say that it's no, just no, a, it's entailed. No, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say they consented to it specifically at all. In fact, I, I said precisely the opposite. If you read what I said about Rachel Runyon, I specifically said that she did not consent to that kind of specific. Right. Well, let's get into this next part. So, you say, God is not arbitrary and capricious with respect to which instances of evil he will allow to preserve the viability of his plan of atonement. He bases his choices, meaning, am I going to allow this evil or am I not going to allow this evil? So he bases on A, the prior choice to consent of those who are potentially victimized, and B, the fact that they will not be deprived of the opportunity for soul-making towards celestial glory as the result of death, you say as an infant, because that's what we were talking about, but it, just death in general, I would say. When God is choosing whether or not to allow, or, you know, saying, I need to intervene here, I don't need to intervene, you're saying he takes into consideration the consent level of the individuals. I don't know, it just, it seems like a general consent would have sufficed. Everyone consented, so I can intervene whenever I want. Why would he limit himself so much like that? What I want to do is leave open the possibility here that each person has an individualized plan. So, not that God has guaranteed that any specific event will occur that causes their death at a specific time or anything like that, but that given where a person is, the kinds of experiences that may benefit them the most, God directs them in a way that those experiences will come their way. Um, I believe that God is omni-resourceful. That is, he is so much more knowledgeable than we are and has so much more power than we do that he can orchestrate matters so that we have opportunities to grow that will serve us the most. And so we see events happening in our lives that we recognize were there that really were for our best interest. Even the kinds of things that we took as evils were those that, that resulted in our greatest growth. And so it may be that each person has some kind of an individual plan about the kinds of experiences that they will have or, or that may be directed their way so that they can benefit from that. Now, that has to be put in, into the context of free will and so forth. So God, being omni-resourceful, has to be really, really resourceful. But remember, this is God is not an aloof deity who got the, the clock you know, wound up and just let it unwind. This is not deism. God is involved on a day-to-day -day basis in, in our lives. 
and in the events that occur and in preserving us on occasion and in directing things our way. We see that certain things occur in our lives that are not a mere coincidence, but that they are presented to us in such a way that we recognize that they were particularized for us to give us the opportunity to experience what we did. Let me read this quote, and then I found another quote that I just want to ask you. So you say, so whether an evil that gives an opportunity to learn turns out to, in fact, actually be an occasion of learning is up to the individual involved. This life is but a moment in the eternal span of time that we have been progressing and learning through many episodes of various types of experiences, as we talked about all this at the beginning. There has been an eternity for the intelligences to work out what they desire to learn in this life. Toward that end, I suggest that each intelligent spirit in the pre-mortal life may have entered into certain covenants and agreements with others to be means by which they could learn the lessons necessary to progress in the capacity to love. So, and we could talk for a really long time about this, but I just want to get your general idea here. When you talk about these lessons or learning, I'm getting a little disconnected just because it seems like you're thinking about this in terms of like, like a skill, like I need to learn how to build a computer. Hey, that's a finite amount of knowledge. You can learn it. Once you've learned it, boom, check off the box. You know how to build a computer. You can always expand it a little bit to different kinds of computers. But the things that you're talking about learning here, such as being in relationship or just we can take Christ-like attributes of love, patience, charity, humility. Let's zoom in on humility, for example. I'm saying these type of things don't seem like something that you can just learn, check a box and say, I've learned what I needed to in this life because I learned love, check, or I learned humility. The second you you think you've mastered humility would suggest that you haven't mastered humility. So I'm saying these, these things tend to be things that you can never, like you give the example of God, there's no greatest possible integer on any of them. There's no cap saying you would have learned it, which has this repercussion on your view, which we'll get into in a second, but you're saying no one will die before they've learned or they've had a sufficient opportunity to come to learn what they came here to learn. What I'm saying is there is, it's impossible to learn maximum on this. So I think at best what you could say is, this is kind of how I view it and you can bring it back to your view. But like I say, it seems like there's more of general consent. It's like, hey, go into this life, learn all you can. What we're trying to learn is is love. And so I'm, I'm giving you a place where you can go and you're going to be in relationship with other people and you're going to be out of my presence. You're not going to remember any of your relationships before. You're going to have a really myopic, self-centered view. And your goal in this life is to overcome that and to learn to love these other people when you can't see who they are. You can't get a sense for anyone outside of you. You have to emerge from yourself. But again, having said that, well, I give this example, or I've given you this example before, like, I do yoga sometimes, and when you go do yoga, you're doing these exact same poses every time, but the teacher in this video I do, he says, these poses are infinite. There's no perfect way to do a pose, and it's not like you did the pose, check, I did the perfect pose. It's always deeper, and so I'm saying these lessons can't just be learned and then you're done. It seems like you're saying that they can, though. That may be one way of framing this kind of a a theodicy. Certainly is possible. I've already, you know, discussed, it may be that that the kind of consent that was given was merely a general consent. The question we have then is the nature of consent, and is that adequate to exonerate God from the kinds of evils that we actually experience, or was more knowledge necessary in order to give a consent that would be sufficient, so that it actually worked where the consent somehow exonerates God from the charge that um, he's culpable for what's occurring? That's a possibility. 
the lessons I have in mind, let me give an example concretely. So I've noticed with people who, let me just give an example of a friend I had. He's been divorced four times, and the reason he's been divorced four times, as far as I can tell, is every, every single time he marries the same kind of a woman. And he acts in the same kind of a way, very controlling, and his partners don't like that, and he alienates them, and so he destroys his relationships again. At some point, however, he learned that I can't be controlling, and I'm going to marry a different kind of person because I don't get along well with that kind of a person. He's learned the lesson. And so he's learned to overcome being controlling and the kinds of things that destroy relationships. And we're all working on it. I mean, as you said, there's no intrinsic maxima here. It's not like someday we say, oh, I've got the perfect love. That never happens. Our love continues to grow. And we continue to learn. But the kinds of things that destroy relationships, we can learn in our lives the kinds of issues that we have. And I've already asserted, I believe that life is actually set up in such a way that the kinds of issues that we have that get in the way of relationships, our interpersonal relationships, get represented to us over and over again because the same issues keep returning to us. If we don't learn how to knock the edges off of ourselves as a rolling stone running down a hill, to use Joseph Smith's metaphor, we're going to continue to have the same problems in our relationships that destroyed past relationships. You know, people have buttons. The fact that they have buttons, we know when I do this, they're going to do that. And they're always going to do that. Well, the goal is to get the button to disappear because I've learned that I don't need that button and that it doesn't serve me, okay? So that's the kind of learning that I have in mind in particular. There may be a lot of other things that people came here to accomplish. You know, I happen to believe that Mahatma Gandhi came in, in part for the people of India. and the, You know, Mandela was here for the people of South Africa. They had a purpose in life. And they fulfilled that purpose. Not everybody will fulfill the purpose they have in life. What this theodicy recognizes is that God is omni-resourceful. And it may well be that, you know, a general consent is all that was ever given. But the fact is that we're born into families. I have five brothers and sisters, or five siblings, I should say. And I believe that they're each essential to my experience in life. I believe we consented to be together as a family before we came here. And I, you know, the kinds of personalities that we have, I believe that we work on each other to give each other opportunities to learn. It's not an accident that we're in the kinds of situations that we are. And it's not an accident that the kinds of people who serve us the most are those who teach us how to get over ourselves and to learn truly to love people without all of the issues that get in the way that really truly are self-defeating and destroy our relationships. So this is a very down-to-earth kind of recognition about the way we actually do our relationships. When you say it's not an accident that someone's doing something in your life to help you, that seems to remove some sort of free will. I, j I just can't see how you can say that and not say that God is somehow fading something. Life could be set up in such a way that like energy draws like energy. In fact, that's asserted in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. Clearly, you would have to agree that their families that we're in are pre-configured. People don't just show up in families, okay? Sure, but not any way that it would have played out. This is why it's like it's, it seemed to be going back on a lot of the things we went over in the first volume. So if you're saying that we could get together and like, well, because of our past character, we can know probably what we're going to do in the future, which may be true, but and not for a certainty, but I'm saying if we consented to be in the same family with one another, we'd be like, you know what, we seem to be like the kind of beings that could learn a lot from each other. So let's, I don't know if, you know, maybe God assigned it and it's like, hey, you guys want to be in a family? Sure. Or we found each other, like, let's be in a family. Hey, God, we want to be in a family. You want to make that happen? Sure. 
Well, let's get a little more specific. You're in a family where one of your siblings dies early of cancer. Okay. Or you're in a family where one of your siblings is born with a birth defect. Or you're in a family where one of the siblings has a condition where they're always angry and it actually is based physiologically in what they are. The fact that we're in those kinds of relationships may well serve us. Sure, and it could, but it might not. I happen to believe that, for instance, children with Down syndrome, they come so incredibly loving already. I mean, I've seen it. And and I believe that there's a, a just a huge amount of, of love to be learned from being around them. Uh, I don't believe that they're in in families by accident. And if things occur to children when they're young, I believe that God allows that to happen for a reason. And it may be because they consented so that the others in the family could have that experience and benefit from it. Now, none of this is certain. There is this amazing panoply of possibilities and each person will have to look at their own life has the opportunity to look at their own life and see how how it's orchestrated and how god is working in their lives to bring them to be one and and to learn to love in the way that the savior has asked us to love one another okay no i i I agree that obviously any like if you had a physical impeding thing on your life like let's say handicapped people that are born that way then Sure, I I could see that you could, you know, it's possible that you would have consented to that. And like, hey, I'm, you're going to be born, and I don't know if God causes it, or he can just foresee somehow. I don't know when you enter. You know, we don't know all these. There's a whole bunch we don't know. But let's say somehow you could know that that was going to be a very, very likely possibility. And you say... When a child is born with a birth defect into a certain kind of body, you would have to say with certainty that they consented to have that body. Right, I'm just saying how that would be possible without certain foreknowledge, I'd say it would depend on when you enter the body and all that, so who knows. Unless you're going to say God caused it, I don't see how you get I'm saying that they consent to enter into that kind of a body, and I have nothing but the greatest respect for people who have agreed to take on the challenges in life that are presented by being, for instance, in a, in a spastic body. I mean, and those kind of things. I see people like that, and, and I see spiritual giants. I see people who are magnificent beyond belief. And every single one of them is inspiring to me. Let me rehash and give this framing here. So on this view, it would seem, well, I, I guess, I don't know. You've kind of clarified, which I guess if you're going to do that, then I would suggest that maybe when you're, I don't know if you're rewriting this or adding things to it, that you would include what you've said here, that there's many possibilities and this, there's a range of them. But the way you wrote it in the paper, the one that I read, seemed to think that one kind of entails another, and if it doesn't go this way, that the rest of it won't make sense. And then I'll give a specific example here. So, for example, you said that Rachel Runyon would have consented to that type of thing. So let's say her brother didn't consent to being murdered. So on what you wrote in the paper, you're saying that he gave some consent, but not as much consent as her, and she gave a further consent. So if a murderer came up, with his free will, your view seems to say he could not kill this little brother because God will not allow it. I clearly don't say that in the paper. I'm, this is hypothetical. You don't say that specifically. I'm saying that's what's implied. You haven't demonstrated that it's implied. You're just asserting that it's implied, and I deny that it is. All right. Well, let's do it this way then. So just Rachel Runyon then. You're saying she gave further consent. So. No, I'm not. 
She consented to the types and kinds of evils that could occur. That may be just a general consent. We may have all consented to the types and kinds of evils that could occur. I'm not saying that she consented to be murdered as a young child even. I am saying that she was informed that it was a possibility. Right. And that she agreed that her life would nevertheless be worthwhile even if that occurred. Okay, but what is the difference between her then and everyone else? I'm not suggesting that there has to be such a difference. This is fine if this is your new view, but this was not the the view that we just discussed in the outline. Let me bring it up right here. Okay, so this is what I was talking about on the brother thing. You say, if a personal intelligence, this is H of your number nine, if a personal intelligence did not consent to suffer evils, so I'm saying that, say that brother was one of them, that do not have the potential to benefit them personally, to learn from their own experience, then God ensured that they would not be subjected to such evils through miraculous intervention. That's what I was saying. Let's say H fits the brother. Okay? Or, let's say that H fits an alternate view of Rachel Runyon. Let's say Rachel Runyon A consented, Rachel Runyon B did not consent to that. She had not this much consent. So, at that moment, when there's a murderer trying to seize her, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to kidnap this little girl and murder her because I'm a terrible person. Using my free will, I choose to do that. You're saying he would not be able to do that? Well, God, being omni-resourceful, has a whole range of options available to him. Maybe Rachel, and this has actually happened with some kids, that heard a voice to say, run away. Or they feel a strong impression, don't go with that person. <laughs> okay. Why is this part necessary, though? Why didn't you just say there's a general consent and any kid could have been kidnapped and murdered? And if God wants to intervene, he could. And But you all consented to it, so it doesn't, like, then it's up to God. Like... Because it's another, it's a possibility that there were some who didn't fully consent. So they consent, there's this general consent. I agreed to undergo anything, but I don't agree to undergo this kind of an experience. And that, that wouldn't have held them back. Or put it in this context, I can't achieve my life's purpose if this kind of a thing occurs to me as a child. My life's purpose requires that I grow up and that I have, I become a, a statesman, for instance. Or that I grow up and, and I can carry out an atonement or that I grow up and I can carry out the restoration. When people have specific plans for their lives where, where they're saying, no, what I, what, the plan for my life is not to die as a young child. The plan for my life is to survive and, and be there for many people. And you're, you know, God is saying that in order to achieve his purposes, he's going to preserve the life of that person because it is either A, essential to his plan, or be very useful to his plan, or C, it's essential to make it so that that person's life experience was beneficial to them. Okay, so if you do die, though, you weren't essential to God's plan. And that's not what you're trying to say, but that's what you just no, kind you of said. Essential. No, you weren't, essential, you weren't essential to that part of God's plan. Not everybody has to be a savior. Not everybody needs to pull off an atonement. So, I don't know, because the way I understood your view before is that Rachel Runyon gave certain consent that some other people did not give. So what you're now saying, is, it seems like you're saying everyone gave the same consent of things that could happen to them, but some people have to be preserved because they also have some special mission. Not everyone has a special mission, but some people do, and that's how God's plan moves forward. People can have specific life purposes for what they have to experience in this life in order to fulfill that life's purpose. And that can be individual for each of us. Maybe your life's purpose is to be the greatest geologist in the Western United States. I don't know. And I don't even know when people, for instance, are stepping back 
in their near-death experiences, and this is kind of what I'm reflecting on as a, I think it something that has to be uh, accommodated in this kind of a theodicy. They don't know why their lives are being preserved. Maybe later in their lives they'll see why their lives were being preserved, and others know specifically why their lives are being preserved. They have specific things that they have to accomplish, and that's why they came here to accomplish. Everybody will have a separate life purpose, and so there's not one-size-fits-all here. I mean, that's for the positive, but we were talking about the problem of evil and the things that happen to people in the negative, and so they're answering, why is this happening to me? And so it's not their purpose in life to specifically suffer. Go back to the definition. Their life's purpose is fully accomplished even if they die in their youth. And then go back to the definition of that I gave of this didn't occur for any particular reason. God didn't cause it. That kind of a thing. Okay, so from what you just said, anyone that God allows to die has fulfilled their purpose in life? Or had an opportunity to do so. Not everybody fulfills their purpose in life. In the outline you say that if a person has accomplished their purpose in life, then they can die arbitrarily pretty much at any moment. And it doesn't really matter. It just happened. And if someone asks, why did this happen? We can say, I don't know. It just happened. Yeah, there's no real reason. It just occurred. You, you could say, well, it occurred now rather than earlier because they, they've lived a good life and fulfilled the purpose of their life that they came here to fulfill. So what I'm asserting, I think, and I think this is important to assert, is that each person will have, you know, particular purposes that they're here to accomplish. And it will be individual for each of us. And we can't judge the meaning of another purpose's life just because it doesn't match up with the meaning of our life or the purposes that we have. And we don't get to foist our purposes onto anybody else. But the fact is, is that God is going to preserve us to make sure that our lives have meaning for the purposes that we came here to fulfill and that we have an opportunity to do so. Now, it may be there's a point at which we've had that opportunity. We didn't fulfill it. We didn't actually learn what we could have learned. But the bottom line is that we had the opportunity to learn what we came here to learn, and so we can leave at any time. So on this view, it would seem, at least for me and from my limited human perspective, I'm afraid to now accomplish my purpose in life, because if I accomplish my purpose in life, I could die at any second. And if I don't, then I'm preserved until I accomplish this purpose. So it would be in my best interest not to accomplish my purpose in life. How do you avoid that? That's why it's not disclosed to you when you've accomplished your purpose in life. Look, anybody who says, I'm not going to accomplish my purpose in life because I'm afraid that I will have done so and I could die a happy person knowing I've done that, is foolish. Well, not a happy person, just die. I mean, it just seems like God's going to kill me after I accomplish my purpose in life. No, that's, that clearly is not what's being asserted. It's not that God kills you. It's that once you've asserted your life purpose, you can die and you, and you still have fulfilled your life's purpose. Your life has been worthwhile. And your life has been worthwhile whether you die at 2 or at 92. Who determines that, though? I, I would determine if my life was worthwhile. When I say this, I'm saying anyone that comes to this life and they decide to learn, it doesn't really, I mean, I don't know how much God allows or doesn't allow, but it doesn't matter what happens if I'm of the attitude that I can learn something from whatever happens to me and I'm going to, if I can, physically get up and keep going or keep trying, then then good, I'm going to keep learning something. Well, wonderful, but if, and if this life were all that there would ever be, then your argument might be valid, but it isn't. You don't have to learn everything there is to learn in this life, nor could you. Well, right. I'm not asserting that. I didn't. That's not what I'm getting at. That's why an afterlife is so meaningful, because 
an afterlife is essential to preserve the meaning of our lives because we will never have exhausted our ability to love, our ability to learn, or our ability to grow. You know, these things are so valuable that, you know, if they're wiped out at our death, we will have always been totally ripped off because we will have never really had the opportunity to fully learn and grow and express our love, which would be a true tragedy. The fact is, is every time that we fail to do that, when we fail to express our love, when we could, I suppose from one perspective, that's a tragedy, but it's not, a, it's not an irredeemable tragedy. The, the fact is, is that God is always working with us to bring good out of evil. He's always working with us to move us from one degree of glory to another. He's always working with us grace to grace. What I see happening, according to this theodicy, and the reason that life has meaning, is not merely that there was a prologue in which we consented, and, and therefore we're not being used, and our own purposes aren't being realized, because we're fulfilling our purposes. When we come here to show up for others and allow ourselves to be used as means for their purposes. Now, we're not merely means because we're also fulfilling our own purposes. Let me ask you this, and, and maybe I just have a different philosophy on life in general, but I'm the type of person that, I, at least I personally believe, that my purpose in life, so to speak, is something that, that I determine. I don't, other than generically, like you said, God saying, go learn love and learn what you can, God can't determine what I'm going to learn, only I can do that. And so when you say someone accomplishes what they came here to do or their purpose, A, since I can't remember before, then it doesn't really matter whatever I said before, it only matters what I'm doing now. And so I choose my life's purpose. I decide what my life's purpose is, and if I accomplish that, then then awesome. And I think God would be on board with that. So why... Are we trying to, I guess when you say purpose, are you saying more like a task? And I, I guess I do agree on certain people for foreordination, because that is part of Mormon doctrine, say like, you know, Joseph Smith was foreordained to do something, but he didn't just inherently do that. He had to have divine intervention come down and remind him of his purpose, tell him what his purpose was, because obviously he didn't remember it. So he didn't just magically fulfill it and be like, oh, you know what? I think that was my life's purpose. I, I just happened upon it. Well, one of your life's purposes is to have a family and be a father, and I know that because you've already done that. I chose that. I, that wasn't my life's purpose. I chose for that to happen. Your children consented to be your children. Possibly. Let's not even suggest otherwise. Okay. They consented to be your children, and even knowing you know, how hard it would be to be your children. And so when it comes right down to it, yes, we can choose our purpose any time for our life, but there are particular matters that we have chosen to accomplish in this life. And the question is, when do you have to choose your life purpose? Could you choose a life purpose before you come here? And the answer is, of course, yes. Could you have a purpose in coming into mortality? The answer is, of course, yes. Could you reframe and have additional purposes once you get here? And of course, yes. Because we're free beings, we're always free to choose and rechoose our purpose in life. Now, if I'm here and my purpose in life is to carry off an atonement and I choose that what I'm going to do instead is going to start a brothel, I'm free to do so, but that wouldn't really be fulfilling my life purpose if I've been foreordained to do something completely different. Right. Well, I'm just saying Jesus, again, for an example, had to be reminded of his so-called that particular act or thing that he had to accomplish. I'd say, you know, maybe you could say someone had something to accomplished that was vital to God's plan, you can say that, but 
ultimately the actual, I don't know, maybe it's just an equivocation of words, just purpose. I don't think God can give you that purpose. Well, he doesn't give us our purpose even before this life. Well, exactly. That's what I'm saying. point is the choosing of your purpose is an eternal ongoing decision, isn't it? And so, you know, you come here, you have a purpose in coming here that, that you choose, the kinds of experiences you choose to have, that kind of a thing. And you can reframe your life's purpose. Maybe you, you decide to become a great humanist where you're going to go and, and serve people in third world countries. You could have also decided to stay in America and develop a business, employing many people and making their lives better. Yeah, could have done any of that. Yeah. The, the point is, is that you can choose your life's purpose. But it may be that no matter what you choose, you have certain things that you've chosen to be a part of your life before you got here. Because you could also choose before you got here. But if I don't remember, then it doesn't matter either way because I wouldn't know. But you will remember when you die, okay? (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. But it's like, oh, well, whoops, I didn't remember my life's purpose. The fact that we don't remember exactly what our life's purpose is is something that I think we're called to sense what our meaning in life is and to choose it. And so that we get in touch with who we really are eternally when we choose what our life is about. Something that's consistent with who we eternally are. Something very authentic to us. And so this is an ongoing process. And I think a part of being a healthy whole person is to be spiritually in tune with the eternal spirit us because we're spirit beings having a mortal experience, not mortals having occasional spiritual experiences. So would you at least make this distinction, and would it make sense to make this distinction to you, that there's a difference between what I would call your life's purpose based on your free will and your emergent consciousness as a human and non-memory of premortal life, and then that's distinct from specific tasks or accomplishments that God may have in mind for you or he would think is necessary and can call you to because again yeah i can see joseph smith having a purpose of restoring the church but then i also see at least according to what he said that god personally came and called him to that while in this life he didn't just happen upon it so would you make that distinction or would you find that distinction useful might be for some people as i said there's an infinite variegation of what life's purpose may be for people It may be that some people have a very definite life purpose with a mission to fulfill when they come based upon forward nation. Though they're not obligated, I mean, it's not like they are fated to fulfill their life's purpose. As I said, even Jesus could have refrained from drinking that bitter cup. The revelations say that if Joseph Smith does certain things, he will be replaced, okay? So it's always possible that a person who has a life purpose doesn't fulfill that life purpose person like Samson, who had apparently one life purpose, and then Delilah cut his hair. Now, it's clearly a myth, but it's a myth with a very important purpose and message, and that is, you know, if you let a woman get into your life and beguile you, you could really screw up your life's purpose. (laughs) Yeah, there's like several prophets in a row in that section of the Old Testament that have that story with them. (laughs) Exactly. And so maybe a part of that is, is learning how to overcome the kind of temptation that comes when we have a body. Certainly one of the purposes that each of us has who lives a sufficient number of years is to learn to master the passions of our bodies. It may be that for some people, for instance, those who are born with severe birth defects, the primary purpose in life is just learning to live with the kind of pain the body presents. And we have to admit that, you know, there are people who don't even get started on a life's purpose to fulfill. 
I mean, there are individuals who die in infancy, you know, hours old, at two years of age, at four years of age, and and they all have a place. They all have a purpose for their lives. They have a place in God's plan, and and the purpose of their lives is being fulfilled, even though their lives have been truncated. And that's the whole point of this kind of a recognition, is that it explains why people may fulfill their life's purpose, even though they never get started on soul building in this life. So this is a soul-building theodicy, but it's a soul-building theodicy with a whole lot of teeth in it in terms of what may be a life's purpose and what constitutes soul-building, especially because for Mormons, soul-building doesn't stop at at this life and has been going on for eternity before this life. So soul-building isn't limited to just this life, and that's really the answer. So that's an important recognition. On that note of soul-building, so let's rehash, if you will, the pitfalls of a normal soul-building theodicy and see, I don't know if yours avoids some of them, so let's just take the most general criticism is that of what we called moral quietude. So, meaning... That's not a problem of a soul-building theodicy. Moral quietude is a problem for uh, an all-controlling God. If we're a God where we must say that every event that occurs, it is allowed to occur only because it is better that it occur than not occur. In other words, moral quietude is a problem for those, for instance, Calvinists and and Molinists, because God has the kind of control in the world where that's the case. Well, yeah, I understand that. Let let me ask it this way. So, let's say you got soul building. So, if such suffering, I have a quote here from someone, let me see if this fits here. So, if suffering leads, in fact, to a greater good, then by intervening, I might be precluding that greater good myself, or this soul building of this, of however is going to get their soul built from this thing. So taking this argument to its logical extreme, we would conclude that each and every instance of suffering that God permits creates a greater good, because if it didn't, he wouldn't. It just doesn't apply to this theodicy, because this theodicy permits the reality of what we call genuine evils, even though those evils may be redeemable, it may be the case they're not actually redeemed. And it may be the case that all things considered, it's not better that they actually occurred. Given this theodicy, that's not a problem. But you have said that God would stop something if it wasn't something we consented to. So if I see someone suffering or some evil, is like, well, they obviously consented to that, and it's for their purposes, and there must be some purpose behind it, because it must be the soul building of the people around them. They consented to help. And if I help Rachel Runyon not get murdered, then the people she gave her life to soul build, I'm taking away that purpose, and she would have not fulfilled her life's purpose. Here's where this goes wrong. It, it, not only is it horrendous reasoning, it, it just falls apart completely as a non sequitur, and here's why. In terms of game theory, when you don't know who the people are who have their lives fulfilled by that, what you actually do, you can't say that any given person that you know is fated to that. I don't know what game theory is, if you could give a very brief synopsis of that. Game theory is which decisions render the best results. And given game theory, you have to have certain kinds of knowledge in order to gain the best results, um, depending on the rules of the game. In this particular game, what we're talking about, you don't know which persons have actually been foreordained to possibly die in infancy. You have no idea, but what you do know is this. You know that even if they live past infancy, they will still benefit from their mortal experience and that they will realize the celestial glory. You don't know who they are, and the fact that they live beyond 
the age of accountability doesn't indicate that they, they weren't one of those people. The second thing is, is what you do is you guarantee your damnation by doing that. So <laughs> the bottom line is that all things considered, the game that you've chosen, you've chosen to lose the game because you've chosen to absolutely destroy the value of your own life on an unknown possibility. So in terms of game theory, it just doesn't play out the way that you're suggesting it does. And again, this is just hypothetical. I'm not saying, I mean, obviously someone, like with our current view. No, it's the kind of thing, oh, if infants are guaranteed to be saved, then we should kill everybody to guarantee that they'll be saved. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Like, exactly. Like, I should morally be obligated to kill as many people as I can as babies because I'm giving out wings here like they do in It's a Wonderful Life, you know? That's evil, but I mean... And what I'm saying is that it's ridiculous reasoning. Not really. On, on this view, it seems like that would be the maximum thing to do, because if they're not already celestial... <laughs> no, because if they are, in fact, that kind of a person, even if they're not killed as an infant, they, they're still um, a celestial person, because it's possible that celestial people live beyond the age of accountability, and all you really do is guarantee the, the damnation of another person that wouldn't have otherwise been damned. So in terms of game theory, it's the stupidest decision you can make. What would make your theory work is if you were causing them to be saved by killing them as young children. In other words, they wouldn't otherwise qualify for it. And by killing them, you guarantee that they qualify for it. Then your theory would work. But neither of those assumptions is true on, on the view that I'm presenting. Those two assumptions have to be true in order for your suggestion to work in terms of either game theory or logic. So I'm saying like if... If that were the case, that's fine. We don't know. In our the only thing we can do is act on what we know and see, and it's well. The reason it doesn't work is that your your actions are not causal. What causes the celestial, the celestial glory is not that you kill the person, but that they already grew to a certain level before coming into this life. And if in order for that suggestion to work, you have to have a causal relationship between the salvation or glorification of that person and your action. That's all I'm saying. Back on track here. So, this next section, we're going to talk about consent and what exactly can be permissible. You, you name the section, or you ask the question for the section, is it justifiable to permit consent to personality-destroying evils? So you say, it seems an open question whether it is morally permissible for God to allow spirits to consent to be used and abused, degraded and traded, demoralized and depersonalized, even if they express immense love by so consenting, and others may possibly benefit. So, you say the key difference, however, is that the spirits are not only a means to God's ends, their own purpose of expressing their love by being allowed to serve others is also realized in God's plan of atonement. Because the question is, like, does that make it okay? Like, Because I could consent to being like, hey, yeah, you can, you can come rape and kill me, but that's still a morally reprehensible act. Just because I said it doesn't make it moral, right? It's not the consent per se that makes it morally permissible. What makes it morally permissible is that that person's purposes are also being realized so that they're not a mere means to a less viable end. They're not being merely objectified. So what makes it morally permissible is that we're recognizing the dignity of that person and not destroying it because they have consented. And then you give an example of some volunteers and like a... a well. I guess I can kind of say it, and if I mess it up, you can clarify, but basically saying, like, uh, let, let's say there's some people, and they work at a nuclear power plant or something, and there starts to be a meltdown, and someone can stop this, 
or there's maybe it takes five people to stop this nuclear meltdown but if they do it they're going to have to go in by the reactor and they're going to die of radiation poisoning either immediately after or you know have an excruciating life and get cancer and all that or something and if they don't do that then just everyone is going to die within the vicinity so you're saying in this or in this example that say there's five people and they they volunteer to go and do this into the reactor for the benefit of everyone else. So they're saying, you know, I guess this is kind of a utilitarian thing. For the greater good, this suffering, it's better that we suffer than the entire people die. And so they're consenting to go and pretty much understanding what the risks are, they go in and do this. And so why do you use that example if it's not obvious? Well, what it it does is it shows... Is it better for the um, employer to come in and and choose five people to die, or is it more morally permissible if the employer comes who owns the radiation plant? You know, Mr. Burns comes and asks all of the employees there, are there any people who will consent? Now, there may be people who have children and others that don't, and so they're willing to consent. They have purposes to fulfill, and they're willing to consent for whatever their reasons are. The reason I use this is what's called an intuition pump. This is, you know, we have moral sensibilities. What I'm doing is giving an example to pump intuitions here to suggest that the situation in which people morally consent to confront a danger is preferable morally to a situation where people are simply thrown into it without their consent. And this is how consent works, and that's why I give this example. Okay. So is there any reason that you chose a limited number of people? Because I, I, I don't know, this is where, back where I was talking about before, like some people, at least on your view, seem to have really further consent to be able to be harmed more than everyone else. Well, it may be that, that there will be levels of danger. You could change this, this uh, example a little bit and say, five people will have to go into the core, but you need 10 people altogether, and five of them won't go into the core but they will nevertheless be damaged by the radiation. So you have five people who will be less damaged and five people who will be killed. So some people may be willing to consent to that lesser damage, but they don't really want to die. So people can consent at different levels and to confront different levels of danger, and they may do so for their own individual purposes. But the whole point is to simply suggest that when consent is involved, it is more morally permissible than when we don't consent. That consent changes the moral calculus and the moral permissibility of allowing events to occur. Agreed. But I'm saying, like, in my mind, I I go to this example or this thought thing that just comes to my mind, and this is where it kind of doesn't sit exactly well with me. So when you're telling people, for example, you're trying to, I mean, you wouldn't do this, but if you're thinking this even in your own head, when you go to the funeral of someone that was murdered. Let's say a teenage girl gets murdered by her boyfriend. So if you go there and you use this logic, you're like, well, you know, she probably consented to this further evil, and, you know, now we know it. Uh, no, this is absurd in every situation. It's never the case that one should approach any person who is suffering from actual evils and say, oh, now I've got an explanation. <laughs> that, that, that's never permissible. Right. I'm just saying, in, in your own head, if you're trying to make sense of it, though, and you don't, you know, I just, obviously you don't tell that to someone to, you wouldn't express that to someone just because that's a rude thing to do. But you, I mean, your view, you're thinking this in your head. When you go to this funeral of this young girl, you're like, because this girl was murdered in this way, therefore I can clearly conclude based on my view of this plan of atonement theodicy that she had consented to that. And there was some greater good that she served by doing this. Therefore, there you go. 
not that she specifically consented to this, that she consented to the types of evils that could occur in mortality, right? But that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm losing what the purpose of any further consent is, because why, why isn't it just okay for everyone to consent to the maximum level of consent? Because it seems to me, and maybe this is just an illusion, that anyone can kill anyone unless God somehow intervenes. Well, that, that's all that's possible when you say they consent to the maximum level of consent. The answer is, of course, that's the case. It has to be maximal disclosure of what is what is available in the information at the time and maximal consent. Yes, I consent to the specific circumstances as they exist now, and I will confront them entering into mortality. Now, it may be that we consent later on in life when things are revealed to us or it becomes clear to us what we're confronting. I give this example of, you know, the volunteers who will confront the radiation. There, you know, we, we give additional consent all the time. You know, I, I, I think it's important to recognize that when it comes to consent, we ask people to consent all the time. We have people in armed forces that we send into harm's way, and they've consented to confront those kinds of evils for us because of the things that they value in our lives, like freedom. Or there are people like police officers who consent to confront the kinds of evils of people who may shoot them on the road. Or they may have to go into a situation where there's a burglar or, or a domestic dispute where somebody's got a gun. We allow these people to consent. Now, of course, we, we compensate them for their time and so forth, but we can't really compensate them for the danger that they're confronting. They consent to do that for us. And it's essential that some consent so that we can have an orderly society. And so we've set up a, a society where some give that kind of specific consent. We still recognize the magnitude of the gift that they've given to us, especially when, for instance, an officer is killed in the line of action, or when we have people in the armed services who die protecting our freedoms. We owe them a debt of gratitude, but they've given some additional consent, even in this life. And, and, and we ask people to give that consent consistently in our society. It's certainly morally preferable to allow people to consent, for instance, to go into the armed forces than to conscript them. I mean, if we had a king who just said everybody's going to go into the army and they're going to serve whatever interests I give them, and, and we do that when we draft people, that seems much less morally acceptable than when we say, look, you get to choose whether you confront these dangers. It seems like in the eternity of pre-mortal existence before this life, we were the general citizenry, if you will. And then to go into this life, it would seem that we, we all joined the army. Every single person that came to this life joined to have those dangers happen to them. The additional consent is in light of forward nations and specific plans for our lives that we took on. When you admit that there is forward nation and the people have specific purposes that they are coming into this life to fulfill, then what you're doing is giving an individual plan for those people, and there may be an individual plan for everyone as far as we know. It may be that only some people have that individual forward nation. But if I read Alma 13 correctly, and if I understand what Joseph Smith was saying, virtually everybody is foreordained to something. Now, that doesn't guarantee that we will fulfill our foreordination, but at least suggests that we have the purpose of foreordination as a part of the purpose that we enter our lives to accomplish. And I know a lot of people that believe that. I just, I don't know, it doesn't seem to gel with my lived experience thus far, but maybe I just haven't discovered that yet. We'll see. And let me ask you this. So in this other paper, or actually it was a podcast I was listening to, they went over theodicies, and I don't know, maybe this fits 
later more, but just let's introduce it now. So they say, you know, soul building theodicy sometimes seems to fall into this logical fallacy. It's post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is just meaning after this, therefore because of this. So they give an example saying, after this trial, I became a better husband. Therefore, because of the trial, I became a better husband. Or saying, you know, because benefit is possible because of the suffering that happens in the universe, therefore it was by design that that suffering caused that benefit. Or, you know, what they're kind of saying is like, well, I mean, if you say this, it seems more like people experience suffering and then you can say, what good can come from this? And then you find, you find, you give it the meaning. It doesn't have a pre-programmed meaning. Because if it did, and this is the quote from the podcast listened to, they say, and I know this doesn't 100% apply, you've explained away some of this, but let me just read it. So they say, so in order for something like this to happen, the special trial that you had just special for you that was supposed to teach you this special thing is that we would have to assume that everything that played into that happening was the universe had to be specifically crafted so that that specific event could occur to me at that time. And that seems to, first, it takes away some responsibility from us. Let's say a trial happened, and instead of saying, you know what, maybe I caused this with my own bad deeds or something, to say this, I'm like, oh, you know what, this is just a special trial for me. I'm not responsible for this. God gave this to me. And everyone needs to recognize that this is happening to me because I'm being tried. But their conclusion of that was this group discussion to say, when you look at it that way, this is, it's ironic because it's narcissism in the face of human suffering. It seems that even in suffering, humans can't get away from this narcissistic thing that the universe revolves around them. So like, I see some, some parts of that in your theodicy. So how would you get away from that type of criticism in your view? I wouldn't. I would, I would assert that the immortality of man is what God is after, and that the universe actually does revolve around us to the extent that we have a life's purpose to accomplish and have meaning to find in this life. If you find the meaning in this life, you're still creating a universe around yourself. There's no way to avoid the fact that you only have your perspective and you can only create meaning for your own life, and the meaning that you find is invalid for anybody else but you. I mean, I don't know what these people are saying. I don't know how it's narcissistic to find meaning in one's life. I, I'd suggest that's absurd. It's not the meaning. It's just thinking that the whole universe was revolving around you so that you could learn some specific lesson. Just, just for this, because that's where, that's where I bring up the problems with, like, foreknowledge. Where I would disagree with what they're saying is, is that I, or, or I would suggest they're right to this extent, we should never say, that, oh, this, I'm, I'm not accountable for the circumstances in which I found myself. It was all there so that I could learn this lesson, but I had no accountability for creating it. That's, that's not true. And I think whenever we find ourselves in circumstances, in part we placed ourselves in those circumstances and probably helped create what those circumstances are so that whatever we experience, we in part are accountable for the circumstances in which we find ourselves. You know, there's some things that we may participate in, but not knowingly, because, like, you know, you can get cancer. And you may have gotten that because of your human ignorance and you've been around radio stations and TV waves and you ate McDonald's hamburgers and all the things that supposedly contribute to cancer. But, you know, since you're not morally accountable for that, I mean, I guess I would go against what they're saying. Like, maybe maybe that was given to you for a specific reason. I mean, I don't know how you could say that it wasn't for a specific reason. And what they're suggesting is, is that God isn't involved in ordering the world 
to benefit us, and I don't believe that. Well, I think what they're more saying is God didn't doesn't cause bad things to happen to you. When you look at it from the outside, if you if you look at your cancer, you're like, God gave me even this cancer. I'm supposed to learn something from it. Yay for this cancer. It's always the case. I mean, if they're coming from the only perspective that could avoid saying that is probably a process perspective, saying that you know, God didn't cause it, but certainly you'd have to say God lured the universe to bring about the circumstances where cancer could occur. Right. I'm saying on your view, you'd have to say, well, God allowed it. Yeah, you have to say God allowed it. And you'd have to say that God had sufficient reason to allow cancer to occur to people. We, You know, I've outlined that in the theodicy, why, that, why that's permissible. Because those circumstances have to be allowed in a real world with real natural laws and regularities and because... We aren't served in an environment that's a hedonic paradise. We're served in a world where there are actual physical challenges from which we can learn compassion and we can learn from our own experience. Now, the fact that it occurred to me rather than you may be random, but the fact that it's allowed to occur is something that we would specifically have to say God could have stopped it because he had power to do so. At least on this view, on both the finitist views and the process views that we previously talked about, I don't think you have to say that about God, but on this particular theodicy, you do. There was a panel of people, but one of them was like a counselor. And so she's like, well, the thing is, I get people coming in and they're kind of like, you know, I've had heaps and heaps of trials and problems in this life, and it seems totally unfair. Like God is hoisting these things upon me unfairly, and some people don't seem to have to suffer, and I have to suffer more than anyone else. You know, they don't have your view, but if we put your view onto it, I think it comes with some of the same criticisms. So your view is like, you know, I consented to all this and maybe specifically even. And she's saying, well, for me, sometimes it's better to tell the sufferer because I, you know, this thing is like, God gave this to me and I'm supposed to be okay with it. or I'm supposed to do all this stuff like, well, God seems to really hate me or something. And she says, maybe it's better to tell the sufferer that, hey, you know what? It's not personal. You just got unlucky, and you're suffering, but don't worry. It's it's just the fact that the universe has bad things happen, and it's not your fault. God didn't give it to you. It just happened. But what God does want you to do is make the best out of this situation. On your view, I, a further criticism would come up basically saying, like, you know, if I consented to this specific thing when I'm suffering, I'd be like, the council would have to say to the person, like, you know what, and you consented to this, you weird little sadist. You you wanted this to happen to you for some reason. You thought it would be great to learn. You're like those weird CrossFit people that likes to, you know, over-exhaust their body. You're one of those people. Yeah, and that just doesn't apply to the view. What people consented to was life and the circumstances that existed in it. Did they consent? Yeah, they consented to be born in a body with spina bifida. They consented to be born in a body that suffered from MS. They consented to be born in a body that had a propensity for cancer. They consented to all of these things. And it seems to me that you're going to have to say that God foisted onto us evils that he could have stopped if you take another point of view. Obviously, in a process or finitist point of view, you don't have to say those kinds of things, but they have their own problems. The bottom line that I'm saying is none of that follows. The kind of thing that is being suggested just doesn't follow at all. You, no one says, oh, well, yeah, I specifically consented to have cancer. But when a person gets a cancer, they've got to give meaning to the fact that they have cancer. And if a person believes or understands, you know, I have cancer for a reason. God saw that I could possibly benefit from the experience of having cancer. And I in particular. So you're not saying that there is some pre-programmed message that God wanted a person to learn from cancer, but that 
he allowed it because it was possible. I don't know when he, when it's possible that they could learn from cancer. The problem that you run into that this doesn't solve even that is that they possibly might not learn something from it, and they might let it destroy their souls. And so God is taking a great risk, not knowing either way what's going to happen. Well, yeah, he's he has taken a great risk. The risk that he's taken is loving us enough to honor our own life purposes for ourselves. And when we consent, the bad things can happen to us. You know, the fact is, is that the full load of humanity can be placed upon us in, in terms of, you know, our entire family could be wiped out and we could be a paraplegic or a quadriplegic for the rest of our lives. And so when we're talking about individual life's purpose, if any counselor suggested, I'm sorry, but you can't find meaning in this or believe that God is somehow directing your life so that you have these kinds of experiences. My response to that counselor is, how dare you? You're not responsible for finding the purpose of that person's life meaning or what they could possibly find meaning in in their life. How dare you? Well, no, I don't think she was saying you can't find purpose in it. She was just saying that when people feel like God is giving them these trials, and they're like, man, knock it off, God. Don't you see I'm overwhelmed? I can't take it. I'm not morally building from this. It's breaking me down, and you're killing me here. And some people, literally, it's killing them, you know? And so rather than saying, yeah, you're, you're supposed to, I don't know. Like, I see what you're saying, too, and I think it comes back. I think we're saying the same thing. So let me see if we're on the same page here. So I, I'll take the example of what God told Joseph Smith while he was in the Liberty Jail. So... While he's saying, you know, though the the whirlwinds and hell itself will come, I can't, you know, I'm paraphrasing, will come crashing down and weigh upon you and you'll be bent down in the depths of hell. All these things will be for thy good. I, I think we're both saying... Yeah, so what, what I think is being said there is, very, is, is essentially important, and that is that there is inherent value in experience. That merely by having these experiences that we can be benefited from virtually every experience. Now, it may be that there are certain kinds of experiences that just crush us. But even then, what we have to say of the of the soul-crushing kinds of experiences is that we consented to that kind of an experience because we believe that in the end it would either benefit us or give the opportunity to benefit other people. And what I think that we want to say is that it's open for us to find meaning in virtually every experience that we have. Exactly. That's That's where I was going to. So... And and maybe some things are pre-programmed that you're supposed to learn a certain thing, but I take that more as saying, no matter what happens to you... I it can't be programmed that we learn a certain thing, because whether we learn it is a matter of our free will. It can be pre-programmed that we are foreordained to specific purposes, and that we accepted that foreordination and accepted the purpose as part of our life, but we were still free to reject that foreordination and purpose ultimately. And we would not fulfill the purpose of our life in that respect. Yeah, and all I'm saying is that, you know, it may be that God is, you know, at least from that scripture, what I'm learning from it is that, I mean, it may be really hard in some situations. It probably is a lot harder than I've ever experienced. Some people have gone through, obviously, way harder things than I ever had. I haven't had a very hard life by comparison to a lot of people. I just got through reading about the Bataan March in World War II in the Philippines. And what those guys experienced is just, I mean, it is so dehumanizing and so amazingly physically degrading and just such impossible odds. You know, I, I look at people being placed in those circumstances. I can tell you every step of the way I would have been praying to God and, and doing two things, begging him to preserve me and asking, why me? <laughs> why am I undergoing this? 
But then I would go back to the lesson of Viktor Frankl, and that is that when he observed that the people who had purpose in their lives survive much more easily than those who didn't. That's the whole purpose of Man's Search for Meaning. When he notices that when people gain the purpose of expressing their love for others, and, and he noticed, you know, there were people who turned into absolute animals under those circumstances, and it's easy to understand why. I have no criticism of those people because I, I can almost see myself falling into that. The people who stuck out were those that went around giving away their bread, sharing with others, buoying them up, and even in the worst circumstances in life, giving hope to others. Those people are the ones that have learned and, and you know, are, are those that are there to minister to us. And I think who get that in life we create our meaning and the greatest meaning we can create and find is love, love for others. Yeah, that's that's why I was going to, like, I was actually going to use that same example of Viktor Frankl, just saying that it seems like we're ta not necessarily tasked, but at least one thing we're trying to accomplish here is kind of a general attitude of no matter what happens to me, I'm going to find the good in it, and I'm going to make the best of it. I mean, you know, it's the old classic, you know, make some lemonade from lemons, but I mean, that, that attitude is really what God is telling Joseph Smith there. It's like, no matter what happens to you, if you so choose, it can be for your benefit. You can learn something from it. And again, I, it's, maybe it's easier for me to say because I haven't been raped. I, I don't, I'm not a paraplegic. I'm not handicapped. I haven't had my children die. I haven't had my country be so terrible that I have to leave it and go to someone else's country. So maybe it's, it's, I, uh, I can't really speak from experience, but I'm saying we're tasked with that. Well, and there are circumstances in which we can't find meaning because they destroy us. I mean, when a person has a brain tumor, for instance, maybe they find meaning, you know, in the fact that they're there. But ultimately, you know, when a person's turning into a vegetable, that doesn't seem to me to be ultimately for their greater good. Well, but again, there's life after death. <laughs> yeah, there is life after death. And that's the whole point. It doesn't end here. So when we see our existence as having a prologue in a pre-existence and in an ongoing purpose of growth after life, where what we learn here will be so much the greater benefit for us there, but we continue to learn and progress. And our capacity to learn is never exhausted. But more importantly, our capacity to love is never exhausted. And we're seeking to ever expand it. That our life's purpose continues and, and that everything that we've gained here will still be of value because there's life after death. Everything that matters to us here will continue to matter. And the meaning of life isn't snuffed out in the great whimper of, of the heat death of the universe, or when the person simply dies and their body dissolves. It seems to me that an afterlife is essential to have a working theodicy in a plan of salvation theodicy or a plan of atonement theodicy. And that's why it's a part of the theodicy. If there were no life after death, I think that finding meaning or how God could be justified in allowing it to occur to us what the kinds of things that actually occur could not be justified. But I believe in light of an afterlife and in light of the, the prologue that we can see a way that God is justified in allowing the kinds of evils that occur. All right, and then I just want to briefly go over this last section, mostly just read it and have you very briefly comment on these three points here if you would, okay? So in the last section you ask, are radical evils essential to the plan of atonement? And, you know, we obviously have discussed that they are, but you suggest there's three reasons why a world with power to do great good but not power to do great evil is not actually a real option in order for God to accomplish his plans, I guess. So, 
So first, it seems that God's existence would have to be rendered obvious to us with the kind of constant dramatic intervention called for. So, I mean, not getting too much into it, but is that really a problem? Because it would seem like God has revealed himself to people, or at least in some form or another, and that didn't ruin the world. So why do you say that? I've given a number of reasons why cognitive distance from God is essential to the freedom to choose to enter into a relationship with him. I've also given reasons why not knowing that God is doing this or that for us is essential so that we don't turn to God as the great genie in the sky to you know, have our purposes fulfilled and would rob us of the meaning of our lives. It seems that if God were constantly intervening in ways that were totally obvious, that it would destroy the purpose of his plan. Well, so you're saying on a macro level with, with everyone making it obvious to everyone, so you're saying it's still possible for him to reveal himself to individuals, but... It would destroy the plan, possibly, if everyone had the whole vision at the same time. And, and I have an, an entire another chapter on faith and the way that God reveals himself. It's very subtle and leaves room for faith. And more importantly, it leaves room for the freedom of individuals both to accept and reject him. Okay. Say so Second, it's not possible for God to simply gerrymander natural laws in the ways suggested. So... I'll just give an example. If every time we used a knife to put butter on bread, they were hard and we could do it, but every time we used it to stab people, they turned to rubber, it would be obvious that the natural laws are not really natural laws at all. They're just being gerrymandered for whatever purposes we desire. Okay, so are you saying that God literally he can't manipulate the natural laws in that manner or that he doesn't because it would ruin his purposes metaphysically he can't change which natural laws are manifest we that was the first discussion we had on this the odyssey i don't know i don't want to get into this discussion but very briefly so when you're saying that god is constantly intervening if he can't manipulate the natural laws then how is he doing that i mean this is such a truncated discussion of the question of our radical laws essential to the plan of atonement it's taken out of context and difficult to explain so third confronting radical evils is essential to god's plan because of the nature of love at issue and you don't need to go into that at all because we've talked about that at great length elsewhere but well actually why don't you explain why the radical evils relate to the nature of love because i get that we have to choose to enter into the relationship with god and it has to be our choice, and that's essential. But why does a radical evil help me do that? Because it has to be the possibility that people actually choose horrendous evils at times so that we can learn from the kind of enemy love that serves us most. As I've said before, we learn from those that are difficult to love most, not from those that are easy to love, and that's the nature of that discussion. Okay, and then you just end with this quote here, which I really liked. I'll just read it. So, say, the problem of evil thus is not answered by an argument that calls evil good, or that justifies God in allowing evil so that evil is justified, but by a response that transforms the evil with love. Evil remains implacably evil and not a greater good. There are genuine evils because the world is not better, even all things considered, that these horrendous evils occurred. Rather, the world is made better by our loving response to evil. When we respond to our enemies with love, when we respond to violence with love, when we are moved to love and care for others because of the evils they encounter, then, and only then, can we redeem the evil because it has served its purpose to wake us to our own evil and our potential for good. Then the evil is redeemed because, 
Through it, we have learned something we could learn and in no other way that has such great value that it transforms the evils into mentors of gods or us. So the point here is what we call redeemable evils. And the point is, is the evils don't have to actually be for a greater good, but they have to be capable of being redeemed by giving them value by either what we can learn from them in terms of learning to love the choices that we make transform the evils so that we make the greatest good out of them that we possibly can. So Rachel Runyon's death still troubles me to this day, as I've indicated. And I don't know that we can, you know, the person who did this, whatever they did, it's, it's a true tragedy for their eternal destiny that any person would take the life of such an innocent, beautiful little girl. But the reality is that when we see Rachel Runyon in the completion of her celestial glory and the love that she expressed by being willing to undergo this kind of a life and to be of service to others in it, that we see the kind of love that inspires us to return that love and we can grow together. And this is not the end for Rachel Runyon. She will have opportunities, worlds without end, to continue to grow. And maybe we can be inspired by what we learn to give meaning to her experience and what occurred to her. And so in the total context, what this is all about is we transform evils because we respond to evil with love. And that's what Christ taught us to do. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.